0: Okay, good morning, everyone. If you were here last week, we started to look at the nature and the character of God. Um, So for those of you who weren't, I'll just do a very quick summary, or if you were and you can't remember. Um, So we went back to the book of Exodus, and we looked at what God says about himself. And so the title of that talk was, Who Does God Think He Is? Um, And we're still on it. So here you go. Oh, not that one, this one. Who does God still think he is? (laughs) Because he's the same yesterday, today, forever, and this was only a week ago. So he's still God. Um, We talked about the importance of names. We found out about God's name, which isn't God, even though that's what we call him, and we looked at why that was. We found out that his name is, in fact, Yahweh in Hebrew, and, in fact, it's Jehovah in Latin, which you might know better. Um, And the best meaning of which is, I am who I am, or whatever I am, I will be. And at some point, we went down a few side roads to explore one or two things like our relationship with God, that it isn't just about us knowing him, it's about inviting him to know us. And we looked a little bit at Psalm 139, if you know that one. We looked at what the glory of God is, and how Yahweh's glory is also his goodness and how his goodness contains and pervades his nature, and how Yahweh's nature is completely and perfectly expressed in the way he describes his name to Moses in these verses. Shall we read it together? Okay, the Lord, the Lord, don't, don't you say the Yahweh bit. The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, And abounding in love and kindness and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands of generations. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Okay. So that was what Moses heard and sort of saw when God hid him in in a space between two rocks, and he said, I will cause my glory and my goodness to pass by you, and I'll proclaim my name, and that's his name. And then we hit a snag, didn't we? And the snag is the green, or is it green? Yeah, the green bit at the bottom, the bit that nobody likes and nobody wants to talk about, and the bit that we all wish wasn't there. And that is the bit that I'm going to tackle today as best I can. Before we do it, just, I just want to mention this, okay? For me, anything to do with the nature of God is magnetic. It's been like that for a little while now. I'm always drawn to it. I, I, like, I sit up and take notice if anyone says something vaguely. I'm like, oh, what's that about, you know? I, I've got a whole, like, box of stuff in my head all about the nature of God, and I put things into it. And every so often, I mull over it, and I try and connect some dots and put things together. But... I am not a theology <laughs> student or a professor. Or, and as I said last week, I can only take you as far as I've gone myself. And for all my pondering and thinking, I actually don't have huge insight and I don't have all the answers. And I don't know if anyone's got all the answers, actually, because in the end, what we're trying to do is to know someone who is unknowable <laughs> and indescribable and unlike anyone we, we know or have ever met. He's holy. He's holy. And we don't have a box in our minds to put holy into. It's a very hard concept to get our heads around. So I just want to, I'm not making excuses, okay, but I just want to say that um, first. So um, some of the ideas um, that I'm going to share today might be hard for you to handle. Um, But please bear with me and remember that above all, overall, God is good. Overall, god is good let's learn about that together and if you do want to read about what other people think and what he's like there are loads of people probably who do have a lot to say and they have actually researched it quite thoroughly and one of them is this guy you may have heard of john mark coma uh, his probably most famous book is called the ruthless elimination of hurry or something like that yeah um and if you want to dig a bit deeper into some of the things I said last week and look at those other attributes, you know, the ones like that we didn't really talk about, the compassion and all that. He he does that line by line. um, And I'll just leave it here. You can have a look at it later or whatever. Anyway, so what's this verse all about? Come on, Yahweh. (laughs) Why do you say this controversial thing when you're meant to be a God of love? We need to go back a couple of lines to remind ourselves that he forgives sin, wickedness and rebellion. But he does not let the guilty off the hook. So having said, I'm not theological. Here is a theological principle coming up. Anyone who sins is guilty. And that guilt remains on them until the price for guilt is paid. And the price is... Anyone? Death. Death. Yeah. The price for guilt is death. And that's why when the Israelites had to bring offerings later on, after all this... um, the price for the sin offering and the guilt offering, there was always something had to die. Either the death of the person who has sinned, that would work. Or you could have the death of something acceptable to take the person's place, like an animal, which is what I was just saying. Or the death of someone acceptable to take the person's place, like Jesus. And that's the only way that a guilty person can go free. So you need to keep that as a backdrop in your mind, because you might come back to that. So broadly speaking, this verse is all about God's absolute and holy right to be a perfect judge and to administer perfect justice. He is God. He gets to choose what he does, when he does it, and how he does it. It might seem to us sometimes that God has favourites or he deals with one person more leniently than he does with another. But when it comes to sin, Yahweh does not compromise. It's the only thing, it's the one thing that separates him from the people he loves and he won't tolerate it. So this verse is about God's unquestionable ability to deal utterly fairly with every situation. It's about his holiness, his righteousness, his right to discipline and correct us because we are his sons and daughters and he loves us And none of those words are actually used in that passage, but that is what it's about. And we've got a choice about whether we want to trust in his goodness and his nature or not. And it may be that we don't want a God who judges us or who administers justice. And there are people who believe that the gospel of Jesus does not include judgment or, you know, there's no need to talk about sin or being condemned to darkness or hell or whatever because everyone's going to be saved in the end. And that is an attractive gospel, isn't it? It's a gospel according to nice. (laughs) But the God of that gospel is not Yahweh. If we want to know that God, then everything is part of the package. And I really struggled with this a few years ago. I loved every single bit of that verse, except the last bit. I wanted to draw a line, like just before that green bit, and ignore what was underneath it. And I said to God, can't we just, why can't we leave that bit out? Do we need it there? Is it that important? Everything is so great apart from that bit. And at some point, I believe God said to me this, you can leave that bit out if you like, but then that's not my name. And if it's not my name, then it isn't me. It's not Yahweh. It's not the I am. It's not the whatever I am, I will be. It's something else. So, my name is Nita, and you spell that N-I-T-A. Say, for example, you found the T offensive, okay? Just bear with me, okay? You could take it out, and it would say Nia, and that's still a a real name. It's a Welsh name, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Welsh name. I had a friend called Nia. But it's not my name, and if you said to me, Nia, I wouldn't answer you, because that's not my name. Or maybe you might like to replace the T with something else, like maybe an N, and then it would say Nina but that's also not my name. (laughs) If you called me Nina, I wouldn't answer you because that's not my name. Now, I'm not Yahweh, and my name doesn't express who I am in the same way. We had that conversation last week, I think. So it's not disastrous if someone gets my name wrong, but it is of great significance if we don't get Yahweh's name right. Because if we misread his name, then we will misread his character, and that has consequences for our whole life. Because who you think God is affects your whole life, honestly. It really does. If you believe that God loves you to pieces and he's totally cool with whatever you do, even if it disrupts and destroys lives, then you'll live like a yo-yo. You'll be constantly in and out of chaos. If you think God is vindictive and unmerciful and that he counts every wrong thing you do or say against you, then you will live a life heavily burdened by fear. And the guilt and regret that comes with that. If you think that, like what Lynn was saying, that you know, every time something bad happens to you, that is a punishment, then then you you just like you live like that. You'll be kind of constantly questioning and asking and wondering. If you think there is no God, and therefore no judgment when you die, you're going to live your life with complete disregard for the consequences of your actions, because it doesn't matter. What we think about God affects our whole life. And it doesn't just affect our life because we represent God to other people. That's part of who we are and why we are. So how we think of him will come across to other people when we talk about who we think he is. It's really important, okay? If you want to worship that God, this God, the one up here, the God of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who sent Jesus, the same God, we cannot leave out the bits we don't like. We don't get to pick and choose. But here's something else that I think God said to me as I was preparing this and mulling it over. If, if we don't like or want to accept Yahweh's judgment on sin, then actually none of the rest of it really means anything. It sort of falls down. Because how can he be gracious and forgiving towards us if there's nothing to be gracious or forgiving about? If sin and sin's consequences don't matter, neither does mercy. If we would prefer to live without judgment, then what's the point of compassion? Like, you know, they, they all need to be in there. I don't know if I'm making sense. <laughs> so God is a God of justice and judgment as much as he is a God of grace and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. No more, no less. All of his attributes are equal in importance. They all work together. He doesn't have, like, you know, compassion days or judgment weekends. That's not like that. (laughs) If you look at the beginning of verse 7, you'll see as well that his, his love extends to thousands of generations, but the punishment for sin only extends to three or four. And that's not because God thinks that expressing his love is much, much more important than allowing the consequences of sin to play out. It's that his mercy and compassion are also operating at the same time. And the outcome for those of us who love and serve him is that his mercy and compassion temper the horrible effects of sin and evil. Every attribute of, of, attribute of God works together in beautiful and perfect harmony, and they're all part of his goodness, every single one. And that was something else I didn't really understand, because for most of my life, my definition of good was basically nice and kind and sweet. It did not include any kind of judgment or discipline or punishment. And, and I think that's probably quite common thinking, so let me just quickly explore that. We think of love and discipline as being like that, two balances on one of those you know old-fashioned weighing scales. I did have a set in the loft, but it would have taken so long to get the out. I just thought, oh, I'll have a picture. Um, like that. Anyway, we can think each of those um, balance pans are equal and opposite, that love and kindness and affection are the goodies and discipline, correction and punishment are the baddies. So if you think about parenting for a minute, our tendency is to think that the nicest and kindest and most loving parents are on one side and they're the goodies and that the parents who discipline and punish their kids come out as the baddies on the other side or that somehow we've got to kind of, you know, balance it, you know, judgment and discipline have got to work in opposition to love and kindness. We don't want to spoil them, but we don't want to upset them. That is spectacularly untrue. The scales picture is completely the wrong way to look at love and discipline. It's much more like this. It's a bit of a visual aid here. So this, this is love. And into love, sorry about the noise, sorry about the noise if you're listening. Um, into love go all kinds of things, okay? I probably haven't got time to do them all. But into love goes all kinds of things like fun and forgiveness. Laughter, cuddles try and hold this away from the mic. (laughs) Affirmation, understanding, discipline. Oh, it won't fit. (laughs) It It does fit. Yeah, it does fit, does it? Understanding, mercy, kindness, correction, surprises, affection, training, releasing, guidance, compassion, patience. You 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 know, they're all there. Okay. That is love. All of the elements are important in love. Discipline is part of love. And actually, in the Bible, it's picked out as being a really, really important part of love. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, puts it a bit like this. I'm going to just parap- I have just paraphrased it for the sake of time. Do not make light of God's discipline. And don't lose heart if he corrects you. Because... God disciplines those he loves and punishes those he calls his sons and daughters. There's that word, punish again. I really don't like it. (laughs) But there's a strong implication here that discipline and punishment are evidence of love. If a parent doesn't discipline or train their child, it's not because they just love them so much that they can't bear to upset them. It's that they have mistaken love for something that it isn't. They're confusing love with being nice or keeping people happy. Or preventing discomfort, they're not demonstrating love, they're actually demonstrating neglect and lack of compassion. Love is not about being nice, it is about caring so much for the other person that you are not willing to let them become bent out of shape or easily pushed over or unable to handle the knocks of normal life. A good parent will put as much effort as it takes into ensuring that their child grows into a stable, well-formed individual, even if it's painful in the short term. And actually it's quite painful for the parent as well as the child. But that is love. And that's exactly what God is like. He is the perfect Father. He is the perfect Yahweh God. He will forgive sin, rebellion, and wickedness any time we ask. But he thinks too much of us to be willing to allow sin to distort and maim us. He hates sin. He gets angry when sin causes destruction and devastation. He gets upset when the backlash from sin hurts and twists people who are not even responsible for the sin in the first place. He is deadly serious about sin because he knows sin is deadly. So when we sin, he does sometimes allow the consequences of it to discipline and train us. So we understand how destructive it is and so that we do something about it. Sometimes it even allows the consequences of other people's sin to teach us as well so that we have a really healthy hatred of anything that is false or that contains lies or deception or that encourages pride or belief, etc. Seem brutal, doesn't it? How does it express God's goodness? And I think probably the thing most of us struggle with in that sentence is the idea that an innocent person could suffer for the wrongdoing of another person. How can that be good? It's actually incredibly offensive. (laughs) Like if you think about the Grenfell Towers disaster, so much suffering. That's why we have a litigation and compensation structure in this country and many countries. And it's why a lot of our young people are angry with the baby boomers of the 50s because they think they've been... They think they've been landed with a wrecked planet through no fault of their own. And some English translations of the Bible express that idea of punishment a bit like this. He allows the consequences of the sins of the fathers to be felt by the children and grandchildren. And that would have been a very familiar idea to the Israelites. It's this idea of collective responsibility Um, What I mean by that is that they were taught and retaught that their actions would have implications for future generations, good or bad. And they lived accordingly. And I haven't got time to really go into it, but if you read about some of the things that Abraham did in Genesis, it's easy to see that his motivation was the welfare of many generations after him. Here's just one example Abraham went to extreme lengths to ensure that his son Isaac married a wife from a God-fearing family. It would have been really easy to just, like for a local girl in in the place he was living. But he knew that if Isaac married someone like that, there was a danger of mixing religions. Because he lived in an area where there were lots of other gods at the time. And that would mean that future generations wouldn't have a single-minded dedication to the one true God and Abraham knew that that was vital for the survival of the nation that wasn't born yet. He thought ahead to the future, and he took the best and appro- appropriate action that he could. And it was quite extreme. If you read about it, the lengths he went to—it was—it was major, long journeys and lots of gifts and camels and anyway. I don't think we have that same view really in our generation, or rather in our culture. Because our culture majors on the rights and the well being of the individual, and that's become more and more so, I'd say, in the last 20 years. That, that who it's all about you, and people talk about um, victimless crimes you know, that it's fine to, to do that because it, it, it doesn't really matter. It, if it only affects you, it's not a problem. There aren't, there's nothing like that, I don't think, anyway. We've lost the value of community, of looking after the next generation. I'm sure we provide for our kids and our grandkids, and and it's not natural, though, for us to think long-term ahead. But I think we do get that our choices and actions can shape the values of the next generation. For example, people who lie and deceive in order to get the most out of life will most likely pass that on to their kids. If casual sex is your thing, then it will probably be your children's thing. If They see you doing it, they'll think, oh, yeah, I can do that. If your parents were strongly racist, then you probably will be at least a little bit racist, and you might pass that attitude down to your kids. If your parents were alcoholics, even if you don't become one yourself, you will suffer the consequences of their lifestyle. If we love cats, then our children probably will as well. Just looking at Heather. <laughs> etc. And of course, it does happen that one generation does learn from the previous mistakes of another. I'm not suggesting that that doesn't happen. But the unpleasant truth is that whatever it is, lifestyle, politics, religion, family principles, whatever it is, if sinful thinking and behavior forms a large part of it, then when you pass that way on of doing things to your children, you pass on the sin with it. And that will bring a punishment of one sort or another. Sometimes bad things happen to families like mental illness, or an affair, or a divorce, abuse, addiction, suicide. And and those things will definitely affect the people around them in that generation. And and quite often the reason they happen is, is just to do with opportunity, or environment, or a choice that someone made. But occasionally you will see it happening again and again, repeated from one generation to the next, or across the family. You probably know families like that. And, and we call these generational sins or curses. And they very often they have a spiritual root way back in some previous generation. Sometimes it comes from a cult or another religion, and sometimes they're a direct result of a specific sin or a pattern of sin that has allowed something to get a spiritual hold and, it, and the effects of it come down. And we don't really have time to discuss it in detail here, but when we see these things repeated through a generation, It's very clear that the children are bearing the punishment for the sins of the previous generations. It's really sad. The thing about punishment is it's about justice. And justice definitely is the goodness of God, whether we like it or not. We do like it, really, don't we? We do want justice because that's fair, right? We want those who do wrong to others, who lie, steal... Abuse, murder, rape, abduct, invade, terrorise. We want those people to receive justice, especially if they don't repent or make amends. And they will receive justice. Unfortunately, it's not for us to choose how or when, but they will receive justice. Of course, we rarely want justice for ourselves, even when we deserve it. And without a doubt, it does feel unfair when justice means that others suffer for someone else's sin, which is kind of what we're talking about here. But sometimes that is what happens because sin costs and justice demands that the price is paid. It's a hard thing to hear. Now, the great news for us is that we can break the chain of any kind of sin. We can stop it in its tracks and decide that it ends here, now. We don't have to wait three or four generations. We are allowed to cut off both the sin and the consequences of the sin and any root from which it comes, regardless of its origin and regardless of how bad it is and what kind of effect it's had. We can do that because of Jesus' blood sacrifice and his powerful victory over sin and death. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And just... To say here, if you've got an inkling that that's something you might need to do or to talk about, whatever's going on, we will make time to pray with you. So come and speak to me or Rachel, someone you trust later. So I hope we can agree that a large part of the punishment of sin plays out in the knock-on effects which it has. The sort of natural consequences. But there is something else going on here. I'd like to take you back to an earlier point in Exodus, which I actually find quite enlightening, so I hope you do as well. Um, so as we said earlier on, that when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and, and he heard and saw this happen, actually that was the second time he'd gone up the mountain. The first time he went up the mountain, some weeks earlier, God was giving him the law and the commandments. Uh, And this is in Exodus 20. And when we get to the second commandment, it says, it starts like this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or or on earth below or waters beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Okay, and by the way, jealous here means fiercely protective. Okay, and then it goes on to say this punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I found that quite interesting. So you have here a bigger picture, don't you? Which we don't get from that previous Exodus 34 passage. And Moses, of course, already had this bigger picture before he heard Yahweh proclaiming his name. So he understood this. That where people who de- where people deliberately turn away from God, when they're deliberately rebellious and sinful, intentionally making or bowing down to idols and images doing evil things, in short hating God, then they will bear the punishment for their forefathers sins as well as their own i don 't know why that is, but it 's almost as though they knowingly and willingly indulge in sin. And by doing that, it's like they create a kind of landing stage for previous, unforgiven, unpaid-for sin. And it does land. And we talked earlier, didn't we, about the punishment for sin being death. It always has been, and it always will be, as long as sin exists. And God has a perfect and holy right to this, because he made the rule. But a misunderstanding must have arisen in the Israelite community that children needed to be put to death for the sin of their parents. And I want to make this clear, that although there may have been times when people died because of sin, and others ended up dying as well through no fault of their own, including children, that was never, ever God's intention. What God definitely does not do is to demand that children be put to death for the sins of their parents or grandparents. I want to make that really clear. And he makes that very clear as well. Early on in Israel's history, whilst they're still in the desert, after the first generation has died because of their sin, and just before the next generation are about to enter Canaan, Moses is reminding the Israelite community of all the different laws and commands, and he's commissioning them. And it says this in Deuteronomy 24, very clearly, parents are not to be put to death for the sin of their children, nor children for the sin of their parents. Each person dies for their own sin. So that's always been in God's mind. And if you want more proof (laughs) that God always holds a sinner responsible for his own sin and how willing he is to forgive a repentant person, you need need to read Ezekiel 18, because I don't have time today, Um, but it's it's to do with a rhyme or a proverb that the Israelites used to recite to each other, uh, and God pulls them up on it, basically, and says, stop saying this proverb, you're distorting the truth. But anyway, that's for you to do if you'd like to. So, their sin, their responsibility, not the responsibility of any other person in any future generation. But if those generations behave in the way we just described, if they hate God because they're intentionally rebellious and sinful if they flout God's laws and turn away to other gods, and if they don't repent, then at some point there will be some kind of death. Maybe death of a marriage, or a family, or a destiny, or a promise, or a career, friendship. Maybe death of trust, or future, or peace. Maybe even a premature, violent, or accidental death, because sin and death are lifelong partners. It doesn't matter what dies, Something will at some point because that is the price of sin. And in later years, Israel Israel suffered again and again because of the disobedience, rebellion and idolatry of the previous generation. You only have to read the books of judges or kings or actually any of the Old Testament to get the idea of that. You can see death in all kinds of ways afflicting them, famine, war, sickness, disease, family feud, rape, incest, poverty etc. Much later on they were taken into captivity as you know and they lost the very land that they conquered a thousand years ago and they got it back for a while but by the time Jesus um, arrives on the scene they've lost it again and actually they still haven't got it back. It's all a bit dark and gloomy isn't it? But in all of this terrible stuff God was constantly calling Israel back to him, constantly offering forgiveness, mercy, compassion and grace constantly giving them the opportunity to turn from their sin and live in his blessing, forever relenting, forever curtailing disasters. It is a beautiful thread running all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. God desires to have fellowship with his people. It's his constant cry. So he will always, always keep the door open for you and me. He's always eager for people to turn back to him, because he is good. So where are we at? Um, Let's do a quick recap before we end. Do you want to switch that off, George? Because it's not really a very nice thing. (laughs) God's goodness and his name and his character may well include things we're not keen on. I'll put my hand up to that. I'm still not keen on it. But we don't get to pick and choose. Either we want to worship Yahweh in all of his glory and whatever his name means, or we prefer to invent our own God who fits our own ideals. God's judgment and his justice is an integral part of who he is. He hates sin and he does not want those he loves to be at the mercy of its devastating effects, so he will forgive all those who ask. But if we constantly play with sin, entertain it, turn our back on God, he takes his compassionate and merciful hands off us and he allows sin's rules to operate, not just in our lives, maybe in our children's and grandchildren's lives as well. But there's always a way back. I think Kate referred to this earlier on. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's in 1 John 1, John 1, 9, in fact. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that was true before Jesus came, and it's true now, today. It's always been the case if we view everything we've talked about today and last week through the lens of his goodness, we cannot fail to see God for who he is. Faithful, compassionate, righteous, merciful, gracious, fair, just, and holy. Amen.